You know, America really has expanded me beyond my own grasp. I never thought I would have such a wide world view. I want to be seen as a human being. I am an American. Before, like, I didn't have a piece of paper that told me I was an American, but I still consider myself an American. We have experienced a lot of challenges, not in terms that we, we were so much surprised or something like that. The challenges were like basic daily lifestyle. Sometimes you can change people's perspective through just having a good conversation. Their destinies and their security was going to be shaped by the changes in U.S. policy from one administration to the next, or the fact that it doesn't seem to change much. Hello and welcome to the Alien Chronicles. I am your host, Sadia Khan. First of all, I would like to thank all the listeners for their support. Those who have subscribed to us, those who like our Facebook page, our website is live. You can check it out at www.alienchroniclespod.com. As I mentioned in my previous episode, this season I am going to change things a bit and basically experiment. I will not only invite immigrants, but also people who are somehow affiliated with the debate around immigration. And I want this podcast to be a space for honest dialogue around immigration. And it's also important that you as listeners contribute to this discussion. So if you have a question or if you have a story to tell, please do check out our website and you can fill out our contact form or you can directly contact us at info at alienchroniclespod.com. Our guest for today's show is a refugee from Nigeria. But before I introduce him, I would like to talk a little bit about Nigeria to give our listeners context for today's episode. Nigeria is located in West Africa. It has a population of over 190 million. Half of Nigerians are Muslims and about 42% are Christians. It has one of the lowest life expectancies due to poor health care. In 2014, Nigeria passed same-sex marriage prohibition law. Anyone violating this law is subject to up to 14 years in prison. And now to our guest, Idafe Okporo. He is a fierce advocate for human rights, specifically those of LGBT community in New York and around the globe, including West Africa. Idafe Okporo himself is an LGBTQ refugee and his passion to help others like him stems from his struggle, which propels him to stand up for the defenseless. Currently, Adafi is the director of RDJ Refugee Shelter. He is also the author of Bed 26. It's a memoir of an African man's asylum in the United States. He has also served as, in fact, he serves as a board member of First Friends of New Jersey and New York. We will talk to Idafe about his experiences as a refugee and a human rights advocate and a lot more about his advocacy specifically for the LGBTQ community in New York and surrounding areas. Welcome, Idafe. So happy to have you on my show. Thank you very much. I am excited to be here this morning. So, Idafi, we'll start with your book, Bed 26, the book that you wrote. First, what inspired you to write this book? And what would you like your readers, what message, in fact, would you like your readers to take away from this particular book? As the book titled Bed 26, in America, it has been known that when an arriving alien arrives at the border, they are being given a number. So people are subjected to as low as being called a number. 
So I wanted to portray the story of how America take away the dignity of aliens who are arriving in this country and for them not to be able to have a name that it could be attached to and just giving an alien number. So that was why I portray the story of Bear 26. It was the first bed I slept when I came to America. I was detained at Elizabeth, New Jersey. They say that everybody has a story, but you alone can tell your story and tell it with meaning. That was why I documented it so that in time, we know that this was how immigrants who came in 2016 were treated. So what is your story? My story is I work in Nigeria as an LGBTQ advocate. In 2014, my friends were dying. So we're wondering what was making my friends to die. So while we're doing this research, we found out that gay men who are HIV positive refused to go to clinic to assess treatment because of the law that criminalizes themselves by 14 years imprisonment. I was working for a nonprofit funded by USAID. I resigned from my position and I joined this nonprofit called International Center for Advocacy on Right to Health advocating for gay men to have access to treatment. This led to persecution in my community and I had to flee. So I flee to the United Arab Emirates to seek protection, but the UAE do not have, did not sign the 1951 refugee conversion document. So I flew back to Nigeria while I was in hiding. In October 2016, my names and photographs were published as an award-winning LGBTQ rights advocate. This led to further persecution. The pasted posters in my community asking for my persecution wanted dead or alive, so I had to flee. So when I got to JFK, I was stamped to stay for six months. I came in with a two-year visitor's visa, but I have no friends, no family, nobody in this part of the world. So I went to an asylum officer and I told them, that I'm fleeing persecution from my country, that my life is in danger. And they told me that, hey, we have no place to keep you. I'm going to take you to your jail. So that was how I found myself in the detention center. Did that come as a shock to you? <laughs> I have never been to a jail before. Neither have I committed a crime that led to me to be kept in such kind of condition. So when I was coming to America, all I knew about America, that United States is the land of freedom. But you come and be welcomed with shackles and shades. It's surprising that I didn't know that immigrants were treated that way because people outside United States have a bubble definition of what United States is. When you come inside, it's like the bubble is being burst and it's reality like, wow, this is what it is. That's so true because I think, and you're absolutely right about what People, the way people envision United States outside the United States. And that's true for many countries. And I think growing up, I had same experiences in terms of the way I envisioned America and the values associated with that. So when you came here and you were shocked with the answer you got and you were taken to this detention facility, what was your time like in that facility? And what was going through your mind at the time? So I spent six months in the detention center. At the beginning, <laughs> it was tough because, so I came to US with less than $200 in my pockets. And at the detention center, you have to make phone calls to international collects and it's very expensive. So I started working in the detention center voluntarily for a dollar a day. I had to work because I needed money to call and connect with people in the outside world. What kind of work were you doing? 
I was working in the kitchen. I was cleaning the kitchen, preparing meals for detainees, pushing the meals to the their rooms, returning it back and washing the dishes. So there are other people who do laundry, there are other people who clean the center. We the detention center is run by the detainees from these low resource countries that do not have funds and needed something to be able to survive because food are of low quality and you need money to be able to get commissary from the detention center. The commissaries are very expensive. One thing that was the most difficult is that when an immigrant migrates to this country, they don't have friends or family and they are kept in isolation in the middle of nowhere. Nobody's coming to visit you. Nobody's hearing about your welfare. People are subjected to signing their deportation and returning to their country because of isolation, depression, and anxiety. Like it compounds your mental health. It's a system that is meant to like push you to sign your deportation and return back to your own country. I have visited detainees at that facility because I was working as an interpreter with Human Rights First at one point. And I remember the asylum seeker that I was interviewing at the time, he was going through same emotions and he was just traumatized and he wanted to go back. And it is just sad that especially people who suffer persecution in their home countries and when they try to escape, they have to go through this process. Could you also elaborate a little bit about the process itself? Because I want our listeners to understand that when we talk about asylum, people are not granted asylum right away when they come here. And it's a long process and some of them may just be deported. So could you, Adafi, address some of the myths about the process itself? I am pretty lucky. I am one of the exceptional people that got out on time because I got pro bono legal counsel. Like you said, we were working for Human Rights First. People who do not have access to lawyers stays averagely two years. And most people, one in four is being granted asylum. The other four is being deported back to their countries. So private prisons are profit-making industry. And these detention centers have a mandate to detain 34,000 detainees by federal mandate each day in America. So the bed quota is a slot for these private facilities to be able to make money. So getting people to fill that bed is a priority for them. So my final cut was supposed to be March 6th, 2017. I received a letter two weeks to my cut that my cut has been shifted to April 18th. That's seven more weeks because the more you stay there, the more money they make. It takes $201 a day to keep a detainee. So the average wait time is lengthy. So because it's a private-run facility and it's for profit-making reasons. The process of seeking asylum goes through a lot of vetting. You start by doing a credible fear interview at the airport. So when you do that interview at the airport, when you come to the detention center, within seven days, you go for another interview with an asylum officer. If your fear is credible that you face persecution in your country, if you are returned back, they will send you to a court to see a judge. When you get to the judge, it's the first day, you just come and announce yourself that, hi, my name is this. I came to this country seeking protection. And the judge will ask you to come back to lay your concern of what you are seeking asylum for. So they give you another time to come back. When you come back the next time, if you don't have a lawyer, you still say the same thing again until you get a lawyer. 
When you get a lawyer, a lawyer will file the asylum documents. When you come to the court, the judge will receive the document and give you maybe two months in advance or three months to come back and defend the document you have filed. So at that time frame, you are going to gather up the documents that will prove that everything you have been saying since you stepped into the country is true and nothing but the truth. So when you were granted asylum, and we'll, we'll move on to that. And so what was the first day like, like out of detention facility, out, you know, in the world, in New York City or New Jersey or wherever you were? What was that feeling like? And how long did it take you to settle in the city and, you know, be on your own? Do you know that song they sang that I got a feeling? Ooh. <laughs> That tonight's gonna be uh, good. That was like how I was feeling because I have been struggling all my life to live freely as a gay man. That was where the point turned, the tide turned that finally I've been granted asylum. I've been released. I was released by 10 p.m. in the night. It was spring. I was being released into this world. What is this? I was afraid because I there's no take this phone, call these people or take this train, go to this shelter. No information, but the joy of coming outside, breathing, seeing the moonlight and everything. It's just like a rebirth into a new world. But settling is a continuous process. UNHCR published a data that shows that it takes averagely 17 years for a refugee to resettle in a new country. Some refugees don't speak English. They come from countries where their education, like now my education is tied to somebody who graduated from the US or UK. And my accent is different and my skin color is different. It takes a lot to reset. So that was why I moved to New York City because in New York City, there are progressive laws that protect you as a person. I am still settling, but at least I am far better than I was when I came here because now I work as a director of a refugee shelter, helping other refugees to be able to resettle. I have a company of my own called Port LLC, providing platform for people to be able to share their story. All I am doing now is just being a bridge because I believe that settling is an ongoing process. The more I'm able to help people settle, the more settled I become. So was there any one person or an organization that helped you integrate into the society and help you with because you're doing so much right now and it's amazing how you have achieved so much in in this brief period of time that you've been in the US and New York so would you like attribute it to someone other than obviously yourself but like someone else as well I attribute it to a large community of people I can't say it's one person this is true for so many migrants that a lot of people are asking, how can I help? How can I help? How can I help? It's very easy to help. You can help somebody to write their resume to a U.S. style resume. That alone will help a person to get a job. You can give somebody Wi-Fi to browse, to apply for a job, or a suit to go for an interview. The list is endless, but there are two non-profits I'm going to make mention of. One of them is First Friends of New Jersey and New York, which I'm a board member of. First Friend provide support to asylum seekers and migrants who are detained by providing people who are U.S. citizens who want to visit people who don't have families that are in these detention centers. And when you are released from a detention center, they send the volunteer to come and pick you up in the night. 
which it's very hard to see that somebody is willing to leave the comfort of their bed to come and pick you up at night. And immigration equality, they help asylum seekers who are LGBTQ and HIV positive to look for LGBTQ people or HIV positive people, let me clarify, to look for lawyers, pro bono, legal counsel. That being said, the other attribute is given to the host of LGBTQ community members, non-LGBTQ community members, interfaith communities, synagogue, churches, mosques that come together to protest every day and fight. The list is endless. One thing I would say is that wherever you help in the journey plays a role in the entire being of that person. People say that I'm a genius. I believe that if not for the people that encourage me and say that you are not alone, you can make it, you will do it. I wouldn't have been where I am today. That's why today all the message I preach is being a bridge because a bridge is not concerned about what will happen if the car crosses to the other side and what the car does. What is concerned about is that I am here for you to cross. And whatever you do when you cross into the other side doesn't concern me. And there are issues and there are things that we as humans connect beyond borders and beyond ethnicities and cultures. And that's something that's so important. I would like to go back to your time in Nigeria. What was it like growing up in Nigeria as a child, a culture at home? And if you could elaborate a bit on that. So this is the truth. One of the best countries in the world is Nigeria. <laughs> yeah, I love Nigeria. Is like home is always home, no matter where you go to. For me, waking up and discovering that I can't eat the kind of food I used to eat or wear the kind of clothes I used to wear is a bit shocking for me, especially on a cold day like today. Nigeria was where I lived for 26 years of my life. I was born in the southern shores of Nigeria, close to the Atlantic Ocean, and predominantly people from my community are fish farmers. So I like seafood because it's what I eat most. I can eat seafood for the rest of my life. I like dancing, African music, because it's therapy in my community when we come together in the night and sing and dance, gyration. Like you feel free, like you feel like your body is being left on the floor and you go. So one thing I miss about Nigeria is that idea of community, people coming together to serve a common good, or like the United States society that is more individualistic society. So I miss that sense of community. What is your coming out story? Oh my God. So you want people to know I'm gay. <laughs> so I'm a gay guy, proud out gay guy. My family discovered I was gay at a very young age and tried to suppress it by taking me to churches to pray, taking me to mocks, taking me to abalis to cure me from being gay and whatsoever they have tried to do, force me to marry a woman or something. At that age, I also tried to suppress myself too. I was a pastor of a church and like, I preach against homosexuality, I preach against hate. I hate somebody that's out and proud because that is who I want to be. And somebody is being that person. So one day I came across an article that says that, why are you living your life for people that if you fail and they die, they wouldn't see that you fail. And if you succeed and they die, they wouldn't see that you succeed. 
that you rather live your life for yourself and fail than live your life for another person and still fail. So when I got that article, I started saying to myself that I rather experiment for the rest of my life and be myself and fail courageously to be myself than to be somebody else. So I came out to my mom and told my mom that I know you people know I'm a gay guy and you people are trying to suppress me, but this is who I am and I cannot change it. So over the time, I started speaking up about being gay and what have you. But time to time, once every year, I refresh it on my social media. I am gay, I am proud, I am out. So that new people that just know me would see it as a b-board. <laughs> it's not like I, I walk on the street and people know I'm gay. It's such an inspiring story, Daf, especially for other LGBTQ community members. Are you in touch with your family, though? Do you, like, speak with them? Are they happy where you are now? And, like, what kind of communication do you have with your family, especially your mother, because she's the one you came out to, so? So one thing I realize is that love is a bond that cannot be broken. Before you gave birth to the child, while the child was in your womb, in seven months, if they do an X-ray scan and find out that the child is gay, are you going to kill the child from your womb and throw it away? If you are still going to give birth to the child, that means you are still going to love the child. So love is a strong bond. When you truly love somebody, no matter who they are, you can't stop loving them. My mother had me over 10 months. I wasn't giving birth to her in nine months. I was giving birth to her at a tipping point, almost 11 months before my mom gave birth to me. And my mom named me Edafe because when my mom was pregnant, she has done several caesarean operations. So I came out with my hand instead of my head. So they have to push me back. I came back with my leg. So it was struggle. So my mom did a caesarean operation and brought me out. And in Africa, especially in Nigeria, children are wealth. So because of me, my mom was not going to be able to give birth again to so I'm the last child. So my father got married to another woman to give birth to two children for him because the parents, they are pressuring my father to get more children. So because of me, my mom and my dad also separated in 2007 when this other lady decided to come into the house. My father lied that because my mom is supporting me for being gay, that is going to separate with my mom. So my mom and I, I have a very strong bond. When I was fleeing persecution from Nigeria, my mom paid for my flight tickets to leave Nigeria and come to the United States. So my mom have always been supportive of me because she said continuously that I can't change you. Even though I'm an African woman, I can't change you. I can only love you because if you commit suicide, if you die, I have lost you. So what is being gay than not having you be here with me? You said like your mom named you Edafe for a reason and you've explained that. What does Edafe mean? Edafe means a wealthy man because children are wealth and she's not going to be able to have another child. I'm the last child of four. So she named me wealth. Oh, that's very interesting. So moving on to your work, you work tirelessly with community leaders and others here in the U.S. to create a culture of welcoming migrants. Why is it so important to you? Because I'm a bridge. <laughs> A bridge serves one purpose. A bridge serves a purpose of taking people from one place to another. And a durable bridge is a bridge that can be run over and over again 
and don't get weird and torn. So if I am a bridge, I don't care about who run over me. I care about supporting them to be able to run over me tirelessly. So if you have suffered oppression, you will know what it takes to be oppressed. When I came out from the detention center, I stayed in a city shelter at the YMCA. I know what it is to stay with people who are drug addicts, mentally impaired people. So providing a safe space for LGBTQ people not to be able to go through that same kind of persecution in a city shelter, I think it's achieving a lot. For somebody who have nothing, something is everything. $2.75 can prevent somebody from having a status in America. Case study. Somebody have a case in the courts. The money was supposed to go to the courts. It doesn't have $2.75. He jumped the turnstile. A policeman caught him and took him to the police station. Before they could bail him and put him on criminal charges, the court have ordered him deported. Because of $2.75, he was facing criminal charge for two years and six months. After the criminal charge was written off, when he went to court, the judge said they have already in deportation proceedings. It's just $2.75. So you might think that it's nothing. What you are doing is not helping somebody. But like a tree that is planted in a desert, when you plant a tree in a desert, the tree blossom, just one tree. People will be going through the desert. People don't care. One day, somebody will be in need of a shade and that tree will be a shade for that person. And I think it's important for our listeners to understand that sometimes... In fact, most of the time, it is a matter of life and death. So when we talk about, oh, this person was deported, people flee their countries, home countries, because they are fear for their lives. They are persecuted and they are at risk. So when people are sent back, they could face some dire consequences. I've seen this like passion in your voice and, and the way you're talking about LGBTQ community and also about immigrants in general. I would like to get your opinion on the recent Supreme Court. For those listeners who don't know this, Supreme Court upheld President Trump's ban on transgender military personnel serving in the U.S. military. What is your take on that? And do you think that the system has failed in a way. It has failed the LGBTQ community. So this is what I have to say. That when a parent give birth to a child, they love the baby so much. They're like, oh my God, this baby is so cute. Oh, I love this baby. Because the baby is vulnerable to their manipulation. When the baby starts growing and becomes a teenager and make one choice that is different from a choice that they want, they're like, oh, look at him. What do you think? Don't you know? I give birth to you. But you are saying that the child should remain child for the rest of his life. If someone cannot be able to make choice about how they want to live their life, then you have removed the core component that makes us human to be able to make decisions for ourselves. What is my concern? I'm not transgender. But what is my concern if somebody is transgender? I don't have sex with a transgender person. A transgender person walking on the street does not prevent me from doing my job. A transgender person wants to serve the country. Why would you prevent the person from doing a core responsibility of protecting this country? If the person chooses to change his body, it's not your body. When you choose to do abortion or you choose to smoke marijuana, I, as a gay man, did not stop you from doing those things. Why would you stop me to do what I want to do with my own body? I, as a gay man, 
do not fully understand a transgender person, but I don't discriminate a transgender person. Me as an African man, do not fully understand African Americans, but I do not tell them that they have not struggled, they didn't go through slavery. I don't know what happened during the Holocaust, but to tell a Jewish person that they have never gone through any struggle is denying them the struggle that made them who they are. Transgender people have gone through struggles, traumas, to be able to choose who they truly feel or believe that they are. What is the problem of allowing them to live as they choose to live? This is my answer. When you add more option to a selection, you have more choices. You actually have the opportunity to ignore one of the choices because you have more options. It's the same way it is for this, is that if a transgender person choose to be trans, it's not converting your child. It's not converting you to change. If you want to change, you will change. I cannot become a woman tomorrow because I don't want to become a woman. So if a woman wants to become a man, why would I stop them from doing it? So it's a core responsibility for us as human beings to understand that choice is what makes us human. And if we deprive people the ability to choose what they believe or what they want to do, we're depriving them the core value of being a human being. And that's so true, because I think at the end of the day, it's important to respect other people's choices as we would expect them to respect our choices. And sometimes what we do is that we tend to dehumanize others because we want to somehow justify mistreatment of them. Moving on, I ask this question from all my guests. If you were to describe America in one word, what would that be? To still be the greatest country in the world. Why is that? America is the only country in the world that even me that is not a citizen have the right to question the perpetuality of what makes it America. Said by James Baldwin correctly is that everybody in this country have the right to question who they want to be their government, how their government should operate, and what they will not take from their government. Freedom of speech is difficult to find in a lot of places. Even the right to exercise your freedom of speech is hard in other places. So America is still one of the greatest countries in the world. And what is your hope for LGBTQ community in America and also in Nigeria? Because you have been an advocate in both countries and you have fiercely advocated LGBTQ community rights. So what do you see? So we filed a lawsuit against the Nigerian government last year and we got a first court in October when we got when uh, the plaintiffs went to the courts, the court rejected it because of a little mistake. So in February, we're going to be filing another class action suit against the government because I was displaced from Nigeria. So the right for me to be a Nigerian citizen was stripped away from me by my government. So we're fighting in court to see if it can be decriminalized to allow freedom of association of health clinic because HIV status among gay men in Nigeria have increased. And Nigeria has become the second country following South Africa in the prevalence of HIV. It is my hope that in America, that conversion therapy should be banned in the entire country. New York State has banned conversion therapy for both gay and transgender people. So we hope it happens nationwide. You have 
different layers of identity. Yes, you are a member of LGBTQ community and you work for their rights, but you always advocate for immigrant rights. And you've talked about detention facility and Mohorit situation there and then your experiences as a refugee. What are some of the misconceptions about immigrants in the United States that you would like to address? Immigrants are thieves. Immigrants are criminals. They are coming to steal our jobs. Number one misconception about immigrants is they are coming to steal our job. So let me demystify that. According to the statistics from Eurostat, that 73% of job loss in 2017 was due to automation. 13% was due to international trade. The number one job for men in America before was factory job. That is being taken away by machines. Number one job for women was receptionist. That has been taken by visual assistants and our laptops. So uh, voice con and other automation that is happening. So if the problem of our job loss was due to change by technology, so who should we blame? Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> Bill Gates, not immigrants, because they are super, super billionaires that are taking away the jobs from people and giving it to machines so that they can profit more. Secondly, if machines are going to do the job, then human beings should be able to operate those machines. So if change is the only thing that is constant in life, why are we afraid of change? Why don't we go and learn how to operate these machines and be useful in our society? There are different kinds of jobs that are coming up. Social media manager, you pay them a lot. Why don't you learn new skills and acquire new skills? So the myth that immigrants are coming to take away our job is wrong. Immigrants are coming to do the jobs that average Americans would not do, like washing dishes in a restaurant in New York City for $15 an hour. That's such an important point that you've made here, because I think this this whole notion of what was probably ha- happening in 80s and 90s has carried on. And it, the job market has been redefined. And it is extremely important for people to acquire those skills, as you rightfully pointed out. So this is an extremely important point. Idafi, before we end our interview, we've had some really intense conversation and it was very interesting to listen to your story. Very inspiring indeed. I would like to move on to our rapid fire round. And this is like, you know, quick answers to some fun questions so that people can get to know a little bit more about you. I think I may know answer to this one, but I still ask. Uh, Reading books or listening to music? Oh my God. I love reading books. If I want to listen to something, is podcasts or audiobook. I listened to NPR podcast, How I Build This by Guy Ross, and I also listened to Ted Radio Hour by Guy Ross. So 99% of my time is reading and listening to podcasts. And for those listeners who don't know, you have a podcast as well. I have a podcast called The Ponds. It's available on iTunes and every other place you get your podcast. The Ponds is a build bridging platform that enables LGBTQ rights activists, professors, authors, and consultants who talk about cross-cultural communications. If you could eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh my God. Holy crap. I think <laughs> it's going to be shrimp. Shrimp? <laughs> yeah, I love seafood. Ah. So, and it provides protein too provides iron, strong bone. I studied food science and technology and I have a master's in nutrition. And if you could only take three things to a deserted island, what would they be? One, I'm going to take uh, a podcast listening device, (laughs) maybe a phone or something. Secondly, I'm going to take 
a water jar because I can survive on water for a long time. Tedly, I'm going to take my boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Name three things on your bucket list. Three things on my bucket list. One is going to Australia. Two is to be able to impart as much people as I can. Third is to be able to help a lot of people. And if you could have any superpower, what would you want? I want to be the president of the United States of America. You're moving forward failure. Like failure that taught you something that helped you achieve more. So the first failure that taught me a lot is uh, the failing to learn more. So my first book I wrote, Bear 26, I'm not a writer. So I didn't make a lot of research. I just wanted to document my story. So I believe that it's it wasn't a failure. It gave me the insight on how to write better. So I'm going to be writing another book. I am discussing with a publisher now to see how I can improve on what I have written. Ha- have before. you thought about the theme for the book? The theme is being a bridge. Your biggest achievement? My biggest achievement is to be alive, healthy and strong. Describe yourself in three words. Myself in three words, I am a bridge. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you ever got? The best piece of advice I ever got was from Eric Marcos, the founder of Making Gay History. He told me that in every generation, a baton is going to be passed to somebody, that the baton has been passed to me to help pass the message of LGBTQ. The work that we do as LGBTQ activists in our generation, that I should never, ever feel that the work I am doing is not impactful by measuring it with metrics. Your idea of vacation? My idea of vacation would be visiting Nigeria someday. Do you hope to do that? I hope to do that, but I'm going to South America this year to see the comparison of how it looks compared to Africa. Your all-time favorite movie? My all-time favorite movie, I think it's Bruce Almighty. Okay, what, what did you like about that movie? <laughs> Jim Carrey is like my all-time best actor because Jim Carrey brings things to life by visualizing it. It's like the idea of law of attraction. So for him to be able to be a god and be a man and transcend into these two things in one person is really surprising. And other works that Jim Carrey have done, I admire the Max, being somebody behind the Max and everything he does is just phenomenal. As a person, I love him and I think that Bruce Almighty is my all-time favorite because if I have the power to be a god for a day, what can I do? Favorite emoji? Favorite emoji? There's this fist pump. Yeah. There's a fist, there's a black fist pump, there's a brown fist pump. I like using the fist pump. It shows the power of people of color. Best Nigerian restaurant in NYC? Best Nigerian restaurant in NYC is in Brooklyn. I forgot to name, but the favorite restaurant is a Ghanaian restaurant, but they prepare Nigerian food. It's called Accra or 124th Street by Frederick Douglass. Ah, I'll try it out. I am so like amazed with all my guests giving suggestions and I need to start making a list and I'll, I'll try all of them oh out. Oh my God, if you go there, they have a great selection of Nigerian, Ghanaian, all West African, Ivory Coast and different foods. Tea or coffee? Coffee all day. Home is? Home is wherever you call home. 
Thank you so much, Adafi, for sharing your story for this inspirational interview. I would also like to thank all the listeners for joining us today. Also, again, if you have a story to share or any new ideas, please contact us at info at alienchroniclespod.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Chronicles Alien, and you can find us on Instagram at The Alien Chronicles. Please stay tuned for our next episode when we will bring to you another immigrant story. And in the meantime, stay connected. 